When we started this podcast, we were scrapping, just trying to build a show. We've not always been this runaway social phenomena, the number one ranked podcast in the Osage neighborhood, the quote, best new podcast in the Sentinella Adobe Corridor. No, we were a humble little podcast trying to build an audience brick by back-breaking brick. Then, on October 22, 2019, after we'd just begun, an email arrived. You've got mail. I'm a Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan, one that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Hello, sports historians. Hope everybody's doing okay. These are challenging times, but we're going to get through it. Welcome to episode 27 of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. That email? It was from Rear Admiral Harold Pittman. Yes, you heard me. An admiral wrote us an email. I don't know about you, but that was the first time I ever got an email from an admiral. I mean, I love the best TV show of all time, Magnum P.I., the original one from the 80s, of course, and Magnum was only an officer in the Navy. Granted, he was a Navy SEAL, and he quarterbacked Navy to a big win over Army before he was shipped off to Vietnam, but nonetheless, he wasn't an admiral. Okay, before I go any further, let me introduce the producer of today's show, my quarantine partner for life, my wife, Christine Jimbo. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm here to tell you that we have shows on all five weekdays now that's right so follow us on facebook follow us at sportsstoriespodcast.com like our posts on facebook and instagram rate us subscribe do it all we need your help we need your support to keep going so that's my message to you today way to go um yeah talk about uh of uh, uh, those facebook live shows um so fbl5 that refers to facebook live at five and that's always pacific standard time uh, Monday, we go with a long-form interview. Tuesday, we feature a roundtable that's going to discuss the legendary Venice Backyard Championships. That was an iconic volleyball tournament. Ran from 1983 to 1996 in the backyards of Venice, California. That should be a lot of fun. Wednesdays, we put the spotlight on high school athletes, college athletes, all the way up to Olympic athletes and um, those that cover them. And then Thursdays, those are these video podcasts that drop and finally, on Fridays, it's kind of a happy hour, let it fly with a potpourri of guests type of show. So FBL5 is what we're doing, and we hope you'll join us there. I just wanted to interrupt really quick and remind all of our listeners that if you tune in live at 5 mm -hmm. on Facebook, that you can then leave live comments that we can put up right to our guests. So if you want mm -hmm. to interact have your comments show. show, yeah, and interact with us, definitely tune in live at 5. But you can always replay it on YouTube and on Facebook. That's right. That's right. So it turns out that uh, Rear Admiral Hal Pittman held many positions in a decorated and illustrious naval career. Among them, he was a deputy chief of staff for NATO International Security in Kabul, Afghanistan. So you know, Christine, I was part of an earthquake search and rescue team while I was the coach at St. Mark's School in Venice. Nice. Yep. Pretty prestigious. Oh yeah. I also did uh, security for after school pickup when I coached at St. Bernard High School in Playa del Rey. Yep. I had a walkie-talkie and everything. I'm not bragging. It's, a walkie-talkie? Yep. What? How? Who gave you that? Well, mm, that's questionable. How? 
Well, now that I've interviewed him and that he's coming on our Facebook Live show on Friday, I can call him Hal, but if you guys meet him, you should probably call him Admiral Pittman. So Hal had wrote to the show to say that he enjoyed it and that we should interview his son, Evan, the powerlifting violinist that we did, in fact, feature on episode 16. So while I was emailing my new buddy, Hal, I found out that he, among his many accomplishments, had initiated and executed, wait, implemented is probably a better word, a sports diplomacy program in partnership with the U.S. Embassy and various sports federations. He was named advisor for life for the Afghanistan National Olympic Committee. One of the uh, diplomats or sports representative that accompanied Hal was, wait for it, Sports Stories Episode 3 guest Rusty Buchanan. Okay, your minds are blown, I know. Above all, Hal has showed that he's a true leader, someone who's able to care for those that he works with in order to accomplish the mission at hand. One of the greatest leaders ever, a former WW2 Navy man himself, the great teacher and UCLA basketball coach John Wooden spoke about leadership. Well, if I get out of control, how can I tell him to be under control? How can I tell them that if they lose their self-control, they're going to be outplayed when I apparently am losing my self-control on the bench? So I tried to do that uh, part of the example. The example is uh, the greatest teaching thing we have. Uh, I once heard something said, uh, no written word, no spoken plea can teach our youth what they should be, nor all the books on all the shelves. It's what the teachers are themselves. Well, a coach, that's all he is, is a teacher. And I think your actions can determine to a great deal the actions of those under your uh, supervision. So that said, we lined up the Admiral and, you know, please take note. Pittman is the third member of the Navy to do an interview for the Sports Stories podcast. Mike McKay was episode four. Doc Martini was episode five. And wait, make it four considering Thomas Magnum III is part of the show. And John Wooden is more or less a full-time contributor to the show. So that makes it five. That must make Sports Stories with Denny Lennon the show of record for the Navy. So, anchors away, people. It was on January 12th, we jumped in a car and headed to LAX. Then we hopped a plane for PHX, where at the Happy Factory Fitness Gym in Phoenix, we interviewed the retired Navy Rear Admiral and current Director of Military and Veteran Engagement for Arizona Public Service, my buddy, Pal Pittman. Please note the following interview with Hal Pittman was recorded on January 12th, 2020. I think I, I talked to you briefly, you know, right before about there were some similarities in um, when we were going around the country and, and trying to teach everybody just how to run a beach volleyball tournament, what the right. specific rules were compared to indoor. And you know, there's some resistance and other people were very involved in it. And uh, I noticed that today when you're working with, with these people here about um, just proper procedures yeah. that you go through. Talk a little bit about um, spreading spreading the sport or yeah, teaching so, the sport. So uh, I'm you know a vice chairman for AAU Strength Sports, yep. and uh, we have a powerlifting meet coming up here at this particular location, the Happy Factory, mm -hmm. here in uh, Central Phoenix. And so uh, what we did today was we had several individuals who were basically undergoing training to learn how to judge the lifts. Okay. And then there were several individuals who were just here to learn how to do the lifts properly under, you know, the, the rules of AAU powerlifting. So that they could teach. 
Uh, that's right. In effect. And so, well, so that they can teach and so that they can also compete, mm. you know, because there are some technical aspects to powerlifting, particularly, for example, if you're learning the squat. Um, mm -hmm. And so being able to properly do the lifts, it's not the way you do it in the gym. It's the way you do it on the platform, and it's very strict, and it ensures uh, equality that all the competitors are doing it in the very same way, you know, uniformity of uh, uh, motion and activity. So, um, so we did that, and we spent about, I don't know, two and a half hours or something like that uh, going through the individual lifts. And then what we had was we took the, the folks that were going to be doing judging, and we had them sit in a chair and actually and, do judging. And judge one another. And judge sure. Uh, their colleagues doing the lifts and, you know, either give them a white light or a red light. Sure. And so that everybody could learn from the process and learn not to jump the commands or anything like that. One so. of the um, things that was most difficult for us in, in beach volleyball is it's, um, it's officiated for the most part, not unlike junior tennis, where the athletes conduct the play. Right. Right. Until perhaps it gets to the championship games and you might have an official or the national tournaments and stuff. Um and the most difficult part was to get them to enforce that it's the athletes right. that are conducting, right? Yes. What, what is your most difficult part of uh, teaching or what, what's the most difficult part of conducting, you know, a fair competition? So I think in, in powerlifting specifically, it's just to get the people to understand the rules of how to do the, the strict execution of the lift. Mm -hmm. For example, in the bench press, you know, you go into any gym in America, you see people doing the bench press, but it's all different ways yeah. that they do it and they bounce the bar off their chest and mm -hmm. you see they, their butts are up off the bench and things like mm -hmm. that. And, and so it's getting people to, you know, uh, check their ego with the door and come in and be able to just learn how to do it properly. And then you won't be embarrassed when you go to a meet and you're held to the standard See, that you're going to be held it. to. That's it. Because when, you know, sometimes different parts of the country would allow mm -hmm. their local rules to seep into the competition, but then when yeah. their best yeah, teams came that. out right. for the big competition, now they're at a disadvantage. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So um, I noticed uh, Appalachian State was where you did your undergrad work. Yep. And did you grow up in the, what, Virginia area or something? So or? I actually uh, grew up in Maryland. Maryland. And my father was a steel worker, and he uh, he retired about the time I was ready to go to college. So he oh, okay. and my mother were originally from North Carolina. Mm. They moved home, and so I went to App State. That's where I uh, ended up. I had some uh, cousins that had gone there. Okay. And to be perfectly honest with you, um, uh, you know, my parents, uh, neither of them attended college. Matter of fact, my father mm. didn't graduate from high school and, uh, uh, they didn't really know how to advise me on approaching college or approaching mm. a career or anything like that. So it was just, uh, by luck that I, uh, ended up going there. And, uh, then, um, when I graduated from college, that's when I joined the Navy. That's now what um uh, in Maryland. What part of Maryland? Baltimore. Oh, Baltimore. Okay. Balmer. So, yeah. yeah. So did you go to um what what high school? Uh, Overly High School okay. uh, in Baltimore County. Did you Just, uh, compete in sports there? Or? Uh, yeah. So uh, growing up, when I was uh, younger, I played a lot of baseball, and then in high school, I was a wrestler. Okay. And I started my you know love affair with weightlifting when I was in uh, high school as well. Do you remember any like adults that uh, kind of showed you the way when you were young, or identified you and said, "Hey, you'd be good at this." Um. You know, my dad, yeah. my dad, so my dad took me, I told him 
that I wanted to play baseball. We we would watch the Baltimore Orioles, and this yep. was in the in the heyday of the Baltimore so Orioles. So you got Brooks right? Robinson cleaning Brooke, it up at yeah, third base. Yeah, Jim Palmer, Brooks Robinson, yeah. Frank Robinson, and those guys. Nice. And so my dad would take me uh, to the back of the church. Uh, you know, a, a concrete wall, Love rubber, it. rubber baseball, about yeah. that size. Oh, yeah. And so That's he would just throw to me. He would pitch to me. We, we'd get a, a distance that was about the, the right distance for, you know, little league pitching mound. And he would pitch, you know, just throw fastball after fastball after fastball. Cool. And that's how I learned to hit. And we would, we would play catch. And that's how I learned to – I mean, it was just with him, you know. Yeah. And um, – and so I – and I signed up for Little League Baseball, and the coach wanted to – and I told him, you know, when I when he called me, I told him I had never played on an organized team before. And then and then uh, when we started the practices, he said, I thought you said you hadn't played on an organized team. And I said, I haven't. I, you know, I've only, you know, played, you know, with my dad and so we're in the neighborhood and stuff. So, anyway. He had, he, um, he had gone through the Mr. Miyagi training. I guess. Right? <laughs> right? Wax on, wax in, off. The next thing you know, um, you actually you can do this. I, yeah. But, I, you know, I had I had fun with that. And then, you know, uh, just growing up kind of in a tough neighborhood in, uh, in, in Baltimore, I mean, I kind of gravitated towards the martial arts a little bit and okay. towards wrestling. And uh, yeah. it was kind of, you know, half for fun and half to, half you to, know, yeah. to, 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 to stay safe. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, um, I, was a, I was a wrestler in, uh, in high school. And uh, I, you know, my friends and I, you know, dabbled in the martial arts quite a bit. And uh, that's one of the reasons why um, I was really happy to see, you know, Evan go into uh, uh, Taekwondo and make a decision about yeah. that yeah. much earlier than, than, than I ever than, than, than you did. Was now, when you, um, you graduated Appalachian State and you decided Navy, how come? Why why'd the Navy um, stick out? So it well, was I mean, Maryland and, and that area is... is the Naval Academy, Navy right. Yeah. But I hadn't thought about it at the time, and I was actually uh, married at the time and uh, with a child on the way, and it uh, it was a... Uh, a means to an end. It was uh, okay. uh, guaranteed employment right away. And um, my, uh, uh, at the time, my wife's uh, father had served in the Navy for more than 20 years. I see. And I actually went to all the services and, uh, you know, checked in with all the recruiters. And, um, uh, and it, it, you know, each of the recruiters are a little bit different, right? <laughs> so, and, and you'll hear this. Most people who have served in the military will tell you a story about one of the different recruiters. And yeah. so I could never find the Air Force guy. You know, they had probably already made their quota, um, you know, and the Navy guys were really aggressive about getting me in the Army were, you know, they, they have a lot of people that they put through. And so they sort of said, here's the standards that we need and let us know if you're interested. And then the Marines were pretty aggressive, too. And I said, hmm, is this what I do? I want to be a Marine. And I ultimately I think because probably because they were uh, the most aggressive and also they really courted me and they had um some interesting programs. I think the Navy recruiters were the ones that I, uh, you know, that's ultimately the choice I made. Okay. And so, and I, you know, even though I had a college degree, I enlisted. Okay. Okay. So, you know, and, and you know, the college degree is a pathway to become an officer in the military. No doubt. Um, but I, uh, at the time, uh, we were going, you know, the country was going through a recession. And, uh, you know, employment was kind of tough. Unemployment was fairly high. And, uh you know, I went in, and then based on my performance as an enlisted sailor, uh, a couple of years later, I was able to go to officer candidate school. And that's when they identified you. And, and uh, did you get identified, or is it performance-based? So 
So it's based on your evaluations and the recommendations that you get. And, of course, you have okay. to take a test battery. And, you know, so I did fine on the test battery. And then this was during the Reagan years of, you say, know, build up and all yeah, that. Yeah, it was, it was, there was actually funds available to. Yeah, yeah. And so I tell you, where was your first deployment? So uh, uh, let me, well, let me tell you this story about Officer Candidate School. Sure. And, um, and I, and I, and I sometimes recite this story for a specific reason. Um, so in my officer candidate school class, I went to officer candidate school in the summertime, Newport, mm -hmm. Rhode Island, and it was the class that, um, convenes right after college graduation. Mm -hmm. So it's the biggest officer candidate class of the year. And there was like 350 officer candidates in this class. And, um, you know, I struggled, uh, I didn't take a rigorous academic, uh, you know, workload in college. I struggled in OCS. It was a lot of engineering, a lot of technical stuff, celestial navigation, um, damage control, engineering generally. Uh, and anyway, so the bottom line is I finished in the lower half of that 350. Mm -hmm. So I was probably in probably the 60 percentile. So, you know, I didn't set the world on fire academically, but I was the first person in my OCS class to pin on a star. Oh. And okay. I tell people that because it's all about, it's not about the intellect. There's, you know, book learning will only take you so far. It's about how you execute, how you deal with people, mm -hmm. your emotional intelligence and interacting with the people that you work with and understanding the structures in which you're operating within when you're doing your daily work, your jobs, and understanding the art of the possible. What's, mm -hmm. you know, not... What are we doing now? But what's possible? How can we how can we enhance this? How can we expand what we're doing? And how that, can we grow it? And that's a a, a a world of thought that's not necessarily militaristic. I mean, most that seems to me is you're following orders, but you seem to think outside of yeah, your realm. Yeah. Is that something you always had done? Yeah, yeah. I've always been the person that created something where there was nothing. Mm. Um, I think I would have probably been a better, you know, startup founder than a, yeah, than a military yeah, officer. Um, I, I, you know, I'll give you some examples. So I know you uh, spoke with Rusty Buchanan. One mm -hmm. of the things that I did when I was the deputy chief of staff for communications in Afghanistan as a senior communications guy, we were looking at reputational issues in dealing with the Afghan population. And we realized that the Afghans are a very sports-oriented mm -hmm. culture. And so I worked with the embassy to create a sports diplomacy program mm -hmm. that could cross a lot of different boundaries because you can bring a lot of different people together with sports. And, you know, we, we put together a program. We got some grant money through the State Department, and we did a couple of things. Uh, one, we did some refurbishments on the Afghan uh, National Stadium, the Ghazi Stadium, uh, which, which was the, you know, where they had, like, their national soccer championships, and then when the Taliban took over, that's where they did the executions. It's crazy. Yeah, I, re I read about that. It's just, yeah, it's just yeah. and so we refurbished it and brought yeah. in new turf and new lights and helped them, you know, re... I mean, that's not only practical, but it's so symbolic to take that's something that right. the previous, you know... Um, Know, yeah, you know the previous yeah. ruling party, yeah. I suppose, <laughs> um, had used for executions, and then to turn it into sport. That's that's, that's right. really something. Well, we else. returned it to what it was. It was a and gem, you know, and it was a uh, a gemstone of the Afghan people, and particularly in Kabul. And so, you know, we filled the stadium and had a had a ribbon cutting, and we had the you know my boss, General John Allen, who was the head of the International Security Assistance Force there, and you know the head of the Afghan National Olympic Committee, uh, Lieutenant General I, Zahir I, Akbar, I, I just, and that, and. Did, did you take a second to look around and go, wow? 
Oh, well, you know, I mean, I mean, every single day. That's but, unbelievable. But so, but so this program, Denny, that we put together, um, uh, we used funds that we were able to raise to take the members of the Afghan National Olympic Committee and bring them to the United States. Right. And so, and we wanted them to see what was possible, what their sports programs could look like, you know, as opposed to being in a cinder block, you know, house with old equipment or, or whatever, you know, working out as opposed to mm-hmm. like some modern training facilities. So we took them to Florida. Uh, we went to the IMG academies. We went to, I think it was University of Central Florida. We took them to a handful of AAU different events. We also went to the AAU headquarters mm-hmm. uh, and we and, uh, uh, spent some time uh, there. And then uh, uh, we went up to Colorado Springs for two days with the U.S. Olympic Committee up there and, uh, and met with some different individuals there, took them back. And then uh, a month later, we had a delegation come from the United States of coaches that were representing right. AAU to go to Afghanistan essentially for a week and train the trainer. We were training all the coaches for youth sports, boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And, Which uh, that second part is crazy. Right. That would and have never been spoken before. That's right. And so we had volleyball, we had soccer, we had basketball, we had taekwondo, and those were the four sports that we did. Yeah. Um, and that was an did, innovation. That was an innovation. That, that was something that didn't exist. And and now, you, when you entered the Navy, though, I, thought, I, I think I read somewhere that journalism was what you were most interested in at that point. Is is that or is that well, just something okay. you kind of picked? So, <laughs> the real the real story is that I was on track to be a nuclear submarine engineer, and when you first w- when I it. first uh, when oh. I first enlisted, and then okay. I had my physical, and I'm completely colorblind, and so then they said, well, there's about three jo- three jobs you oh, can do, wow. and so okay. I took journalism because I'd always been a writer and I'd always enjoyed that. And then when I was um, commissioned as an officer, there was a couple jobs I could do. Uh, one was supply corps, which is supply logistics, supply chain management, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then the other was aviation maintenance. And that would have been spent a lot of time aboard aircraft carriers working on aircraft, et cetera. I see. Okay. And, and so I took supply corps. And they sent me through training. After officer candidate school, they sent me through training for supply corps. And then I went to my first ship in Hawaii, uh, Pearl Harbor. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was an assistant supply officer on board a ship. At What's sea. an assistant supply officer, general responsibilities? So I had a division of about um, 30 guys, and I was respons- I was a paymaster, so I was responsible mm-hmm. for all the paydays and taking care of everybody's pay. So I actually okay. had a safe. This was back in the days when we had a safe with cash. Oh. So I would go to sea yeah. with like $500,000, $750,000 in <laughs> nice. my safe. Yeah. And I'd have to, you know, maintain all the logs and uh, do all, you know, uh, yeah. complete all the uh, administrative accounting and all that. I don't for, think for, the, the Somali pirates weren't around at that time. Well, uh, <laughs> they weren't, and they would have never gotten on board a never. United States warship yeah. as well. Uh, but I, uh, but I did that, and I was also the division officer for the food service and division officer for the guys that ordered all the supplies on board the ship. And also ships, uh, ship services. So I was responsible for the guys that cut hair, do the laundry okay. on board ship, that's run the ship store, and sell all the stuff. And you know, yeah. and and I and I, I enjoyed that, but it wasn't great. Gave you some practical knowledge of yeah. how the some practical business knowledge. Yeah, sure. And then um, I kind of tracked with the public affairs because that was closely related to writing stories and sort of the things mm-hmm. that I had already been trained okay. in. And um, I eventually moved over into that area. You, um, one, I, uh, one important time 
I think that uh, seemed defining is the uh, bombing of the USS Cole. Yeah. Were you in that area at that time, or were you sent to that after that happened? So um, that was two thousand. Yeah, that's correct. October twelfth, two thousand. So, Denny, I would tell you that I'm a big believer in individual defining moments, uh-huh. and I believe that you know we all have these episodes in our lives when something happens that pushes us beyond what we've ever done before and you're stretched as an individual you know you're forced to go further do more than you've ever done before and what happens is you never you never return to what you were after that experience and so that defining moment changes you you know for the good I'm, I'm a big believer in that and there were several of those incidents in my um my military career i early spent a lot of time in the middle east mm-hmm. and i was at the early uh, in your uh, I, yeah i was deployed on the aircraft carrier multiple times to the persian gulf okay. uh while we were enforcing sanctions against iraq and the you know uh latter half of desert storm and then i was back in the middle east at the headquarters there bahrain in manama bahrain which is the middle persian gulf that's the u.s fifth fleet headquarters and so uh, since i'd already served there multiple times when uss cole was attacked uh, I I was called upon to go there. And I so see. I'll t- tell you a little story. So it was early, early in the morning. It was probably, I, I used to go into work in Washington, D.C. at about 6 a.m. or so. And um, as I was going in, uh, one of my uh, people, one of my guys that worked for me, called me and said, hey, he was a duty officer in the Pentagon. And he said, I'm going to be in late. He says, we've got a real problem. We've got uh, USS Cole with a hole blown in the side of it. And we're missing... Uh, a number of sailors, it's going to be a long day. And um, and this was a guy that was, you know, that worked for me that wasn't going to be coming in because he was having to stay in the Pentagon with the duty that he had. And um, shortly after that, I got a call from the head of our community, the, the admiral in charge, and he said, hey, um, we're sending the foreign emergency support team to Yemen, the FEST, as they call it, which mm-hmm. is a counterterrorism unit. And uh, he said... Uh, we need a, a, a spokesman representative, and, and you're the guy. You've got the, you've got the experience. Uh, get your bags packed uh, four hours to get to Andrews Air Force Base and wheels up. And, uh, and then, did you know what your detail would be? As, did, you like, did you have your mind around no idea. what you're going to No idea. No idea. Because I didn't, I didn't know anything yeah, about wow. the fest or anything like that. This is it. And, this is um, that moment. And uh, anyway, um, you know, I joined the fest, and we flew on a, a back of an aircraft or C9, and uh, and ended up in uh, Aden, Yemen. We touched down, and they wouldn't let us get out of the airplane for uh, I don't know six or eight hours. Jeez. Basically, we couldn't leave the airport area because you know they were concerned about clearances, and there was a lot of wow. you know. Anyway, um, and and so I actually knew the commanding officer of USS Cole, Kirk Lippold. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we had met in the in the Pentagon and. Um, and you know, that was, that was something being down there. And I was essentially the spokesperson supporting the joint task force commander, um, uh, rear Admiral Lobster Fitzgerald. And then, uh, the ambassador as well from Aden Yemen came down, uh, or from, uh, 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 Sanaa came down to Aden, Barbara Bodine. And so she was there and then the joint task force commander were there and they were kind of the two heads of the organization that were trying to support the foreign emergency support team in this investigation and sort of the recovery of bodies and everything else jeez what was your rank at this time uh i was a commander Commander. i was commander commander right before uh rear admiral commander is before captain before captain then yeah 
So that wow. was that was one of so my. That must have been a big. That's your big moment. It I mean, was it was it was certainly one of them. And you know, uh, Louis Free, the head of the FBI, came in and did a press mm. briefing. And you know, we were there for uh, four weeks or so, trying to recover the ship and get the ship in a, in a situation where we could tow it back uh, to the U.S. And I was there with the with the group. And then I ended up flying home on the airplane with the crew. Mm. Uh, you know that were that came off a of coal when they towed it back. Anything that had um, any previous that had prepared you to be in that kind of situation? Uh, yeah, um, I mean I've been the guy. I had been the spokesman in crisis situations before. Back in 1994, I was in uh, the Middle East in Bahrain, and this was after the original Gulf War. And Saddam Hussein put 70,000 troops on the border with Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was down in Bahrain, and my boss says, hey, I need somebody. I got 150 media that are working out of this uh, press center up in Kuwait. We need to send a representative wow. uh, to represent the Navy and tell the Navy story. And got on an airplane and went up there. And um, it, there, there were no other military spokesmen up there. I was the only one. And so, you know, then uh, we uh, set up operations to take journalists out to the different ships. You know, the Marine Amphibious uh, Task Force was in the Gulf. We took uh, journalists out there to see what was going on. And, and it was uh, essentially uh, a near crisis. Well, it was we were working at crisis sort of speed, but uh, it was a very sort of tenuous situation. And the bottom line, instead of going into a long story about it, the bottom line was all the things that were done at the seat of government with the Secretary of Defense mm-hmm. and the President. And the, the word that we did, you know, the work that we did getting, um, telling the story in the Gulf and showing the images. Like yes. I, I, I took uh, 130 people on four buses uh, out in the middle of the desert for a, a combat demonstration, a firepower demonstration, Marine uh, mm-hmm. a, a helicopters flying in, the oh, troops no. getting out, you know, the Marines getting out, firing weapons, blowing stuff up. Uh, and, you know, basically this video was captured by every single network, you know, in the world. There were 17 different hmm. uh, television networks that were present there, all different languages for that one exercise. And they, those were going out, those stories were all over the airwaves, all the TV. We knew that Saddam Hussein watched uh, CNN and all that. And it was about five days straight of that, with yeah. sleeping one or two hours a night, getting up and doing something similar the next day to show the flag and demonstrate deterrence, to de- and, demonstrate and, this forces and, out there. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of firepower. Don't you even think about it. He withdrew his troops. Denny. Denny. What? what? It's time for a commercial. I know, but I'm talking to the Admiral. Casablanca Restaurant in Venice, California. Proud sponsor of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Also sponsoring the Facebook Live at Five Friday show. Margaritas. That's right. Carlos is kind enough at Casablanca to uh, package up like a to-go, what they're selling, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to-go. What, uh, what is in it? It's like that taco it's a bar. daily deal. He does basically a taco bar with... Two different meats, beans, rice, uh, tortillas. It's fantastic. Brilliant. And then you throw in the margaritas with that. And if you watch our uh, Friday show, you'll see that we cheers one another. He sends one over to uh, Venice where Marley and the Rices are hosting part of the show over here to the 7428 studio. And where any we do local it. guests. And any local guests. Doug O'Neill. Benefit as well. Doug O'Neill, the uh, Triple Crown winner, horse trainer, is a new big fan. So, you know, thank you, Carlos. You can call Carlos. At 310-505-5091. Again, 310-505-5091. 
call Carlos. Ask him for the sports stories with Denny Lennon special. He's going to throw in margaritas or a big percentage off. Vámonos a Casa Blanca. Vámonos a Casa Blanca. Vámonos a Casa Blanca. La comida para la familia. Vámonos a Casa Blanca. Vámonos a Casa Blanca. Now back to our interview with Rear Admiral Hal Pittman. And you're getting those repetitions in that kind of position. That's right. At a very in, in a very intense situation. Yeah. That leads leads you to eventually. I, I heard you recently speaking um, on one podcast or another about uh, communication integration. Yes. So whether it's that situation, a situation with coal, or moving into situations in Afghanistan, it's being able to properly communicate and affect your mission? Well, I think... Or, or in effect, you know... You know so, so I will tell you that, um, number one, it's about telling a, a story of, you know, uh, the mission of the United States Navy, the mission of joint forces, and that serves in and of itself as a deterrent mm-hmm. for those who would wish ill on the United States mm-hmm. and our allies. Um, so, so that was one thing. And, and in that particular instance in 1994, that was a deterrent. And Saddam Hussein withdrew his forces and took them home. We found out later, after the U.S. invaded Iraq back mm-hmm. in 2003, the intelligence we gathered showed that he had every intent of coming back across the border to try to retake the Kuwaiti oil fields and use them as a bargaining chip to have sanctions lifted. But the work that we did deterred him from doing that because he didn't feel like he would be successful with all the firepower that he saw in the Gulf. Yeah. Um, so the message integration is kind of a tool, but I, it's a tool that I, uh, worked to perfect when I was at higher level headquarters in the Pentagon and also in Afghanistan. And it's really about being able to, um, have a consistent message over a very large, uh, geographic area and right. a very large operation. So it's a, a series of sort of, uh, tactics and techniques and procedures to be able to keep everybody aligned. You know, when you're, you you have a, like a policy. Languages and there's different oh, yeah. platforms oh, yeah. of oh, technology. Oh, yeah, of course. This of course. is difficult. Of course, and everybody has their own political position and all that, and it's really about trying to gather your arms around all that uh-huh. and have a concise narrative that you're able to get out there. And, and so, you said it starts at the top. Oh, yeah, it always starts at the top. Having uh, a senior leader who has – uh, clear guidance and provides right and left boundaries, and then that's how everybody else falls in. And under they got to get used to telling that story over and over, over and again over because again. you don't know who's than... listening to it the first time, third time. So, so when I was, um, I was the press secretary and communications lead for General John Abizaid, who was yeah. uh, the Central Command commander from 2003 to 2007. That was during the invasion of Iraq, early years of Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. Iraq, Afghanistan, yeah. And we would travel, and, and he and he said to me one time, how. Sometimes I get tired of, you know, saying the same things over and over again. And I said, mm-hmm. boss, for you, it's the hundredth time. Some people, it's the first or first second time. time they've heard it. And it really takes about six or seven times for yeah. it to settle in. So you just got to keep, you know, when you're the senior leader, you got to keep on telling yeah. that same story over and over again. And I'll give you another story, too. I, I love John Abizaid. He's a fantastic man. He's now the ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And um, so <laughs> we were in the United Arab Emirates. And, our, you know, our group would go on these battlefield circulations and we would go to Iraq and we would f- go all around Iraq and see what the troops are doing and have different briefings. And we'd spend a week in Iraq and then, you know, we'd go to Kuwait and then we'd go to Bahrain and go out on like the aircraft carrier to see what the battle group is doing. Mm-hmm. So we ended up in the UAE. And um, 
we were staying at the hotel and, you know, um, so different Arab countries have, you know, a different, uh, you know, different rules as it pertains to whether they allow alcohol in bars. And so the UAE is a little bit more progressive. And so there was this Mexican restaurant at the hotel and they had alcohol there. So we, we go in and have dinner and, um, so we're sitting up here and it's, um, it's a Filipino cover band and they're playing American, you know, rock and roll music. Yeah. And they've got like a Ukrainian singer. And here we are eating Mexican food and we're drinking German beer. And Abizade looks at me and goes, how this is what it's all about. And I said, what are you talking about, sir? He goes, it's choice. We're fighting about choice. We're fighting over choice to give people the freedoms that they want to have to do whatever they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's pretty <laughs> I like, profound. I like that right there. You said the uh, German beer, and it reminded me that um, the um, Afghanistan, I was just reading up a little bit because, you know, <clears throat> for those of us that haven't been in the military, some of us, like I, I love history, and, and yeah. so, but, but understanding your world, it's so fascinating, right? And anyway, so I want to dive in a little bit at the Afghan. The Afghans stayed out of World War One because the Germans were getting drunk too often when they were trying to woo them over. And they're, you know, they're, they're just like, no, we're not going to join those drunk people. <laughs> and you're talking about the German beer. I thought, hmm, that was a good one. Because huh. Afghanistan stayed out of the world wars. Yeah. Of it only, you know, to have their own internal conflicts and That's then right. to be invaded by uh, right. Russia, right? And yeah. so the, the difference between the Soviets, the, their purpose rolling in is entirely different than our purpose on, post, well, on, on, on the post side. And what we left was a structure. And what the Soviets left was a, a lack of rubble. structure. Um, a yeah. lot of rubble, yeah. So, you know, the challenge came when uh, after post-Soviet, um, you know, the post-Soviet time, there was kind of a lull mm -hmm. as Afghanistan tried to right itself and sort mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. you know, come back to uh, being an independent country after having, you know, so many years of occupation. And that's when, you know, uh, the Taliban became a power, you know, okay. obviously a very harshly, uh, you know, conservative uh, interpretation of Islam, uh, very, very violent, um, you know, the Wahhabist um, kind of form of Islam. And, uh, and that came in from the different uh, mosques and, you know, mm -hmm. the different uh, religious schools. And uh, basically that civil war, they, they took over the country and they inhabited the country for a period of time. And they were also the ones that harbored Osama bin Laden, you know, and Al-Qaeda. And yeah. so that's, you know, that's the, enter the United it, States it, after 9-11. Yeah, exactly, to actually <clears throat> excise their ability to. Now, and, and what we have done, I'll tell you this. I mean, we, we put a lot of money into Afghanistan and a lot of treasure, and we helped build a structure, and we helped them. We helped the Afghans cre create, a, a, you know, a, self, a form of self-governance. Mm -hmm. It's their form of self-governance, mm -hmm. their own parliament. Um, and there's a, certainly a lot more structure there now than there was mm -hmm. uh, when we got there, or even that there was before. There's a lot of uh, development, etc. Um, but you know what? It was one of the one of the very poorest countries in the world before, and it still remains one of the poorest countries you know that there is. Even though they have great mineral wealth, they don't have the capacity to to, 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 to take it out and and mm -hmm. and you know um, be able to benefit from it. So there was a um, in in all of this. You know, you have you know you've risen to rear admiral and you have a very important position 
in um, what was the ISAF? ISAF, yeah. ISAF. International and, Security Assistance and, Force. And so you have, you have this really important Senado. position, but any time you had to yourself that you could get away, you would get on that 20-hour flight back to go uh, see if you couldn't make it for some competition or something that your boy might be in. I read one of yeah. your either journals or blogs, and um, I was touched <laughs> by that because it might <clears throat> scale it way back to two-hour plane flights. But I used to be in some kind of city doing something, and uh, I always made the arrangement because I used to announce a lot for women's pro beach volleyball and this stuff. Yeah. And I always made the arrangement with them that, no, I need that red-eye flight. I'm not going on that flight because I'll miss my daughter singing in the choir. I'll miss my son's game. Yeah. And I used to, you know, make those sacrifices on my own level. <laughs> right. <laughs> they weren't right. 20 hours leaving a war zone. But um, but I got well, that. Like, I related to you on that. Like, yeah. your time was, yeah, this so, is where I need to be. So, we had, um, so, it was in 2009 when Evan went to the, his first Junior Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. And we had this fabulous time. And our agreement was always, you know, he competed in a couple of events, won two gold medals in his first two competitions. And um, we had this agreement that, you know, if he trained hard, we would we would find a way to make it work. And, mm-hmm. um, and so this was in uh, summer of 2011. So it would have been, you know, whatever, third or fourth uh, Junior Olympic Games. And uh, I, you know, I could, I, we weren't going to miss it because of me you know so i just had to make that arrangement that you know it was a one-year deployment and i got two weeks in the middle of it sometime to take it my discretion and i planned that two weeks so i could come home and we could go to the junior olympic games because that was the that was the big thing of our year you know and i knew that he was we, we had to find people to help him train uh and he was training in both uh you know taekwondo and uh powerlifting and, uh, you know, I just wanted to make sure that it, it uh, worked out, and it did. I would imagine the biggest arrangement, the biggest contract you had to land was with, with your wife to carry the load while you were gone, huh? Well, she – look, <laughs> my, I married the perfect woman. Um, she had been a military officer herself, mm-hmm. uh, ROTC. Um, her dad was a colonel in the Air Force. Uh, she has a long history of military officers in her family. And she grew up as a military brat in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. Yeah. So she had all those experiences. And she knew, I mean, she knew what it was like. And so... And the sense of sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, when you're in the military, you go away to execute national policy. That's that's your job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the purest sense, I mean, as they say, you know, kill people and break things. But... It really is about, a, a, you know, a, a huge lever of national power and national policy. The, the, there's comparisons often, and in, in probably sometimes they're used inappropriately, but for the most part between military and, and athletics. You know, I mean, football borrows all of, the technolo- uh, all of the terminology and those kind of things. But I find this intersection is really interesting, whether you were making, you know, that kind of sacrifice or when you talked about the, um, the Gazi Olympic Stadium or just this, this diplomacy of sport trying to bridge the gap between our culture and another culture. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me what sports can do to bridge these gaps. Yeah. Well, I think so. Uh, a, a friend of mine, uh, Harrison Bernstein, runs mm. uh, Soldiers the Sidelines. Mm-hmm. And his 
his thought is that military members make the some of the very best coaches mm-hmm. in sports because we're absolutely taught to be selfless. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, about service and being, you know, a service oriented leader. Something and, bigger and, than yourself. Yeah, it's it's all about it's all about the team. It's all about mm-hmm. you know preparing the team, preparing your team to to move ahead. And I think that uh, goes. It's the best coaches that you find are very similar in the way that they, you know, handle each individual athlete differently, but equally and, um, you know, and focus on the team and and making the team ready. And it's not about their own, you know, uh, you know, their own cult of personality, but rather about, you know, pushing the team ahead and winning. Dabo Sweeney's a perfect example a pro, from Clemson. Yeah. I mean, I, I just love the way he, you know, he coaches and, and brings mm-hmm. his teams about, and it's about creating a family-like atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and, and there's something that's just so um, authentic about that uh, approach to it. And this ability to perhaps affect change in a, a country like Afghanistan. One of the points you made was, I think, like 70% of the population is below the age of 25 or, or something. Oh, it's probably even more than that, Danny. Wow, that, there's a huge youth well, bulge. That's, that's, there's this that, huge youth bulge, and there's there's wild. a lack of jobs. And so, so and, and when there's no, when there are no jobs and there's no, people can't see past today because they don't have food on the table. They can't envision a future where, you know, um, where development and trade and commerce and, you know, the things that run our society that we know, they, they can't see that. And so you can also see why it's easy for young people to fall prey to, um, you know, uh, things like the Taliban or, you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. radical groups. I mean, because, you know, particularly if they're earning a salary. And, and, and sadly, you know, there's a sense of belonging there. That's right. That's there's a, a sense of belonging. Work. There's a sense of team. And, you know, I mean, you know, it, it's uh, it's guarantees that, you know, I've got uh, food on my table and I've got clothes on my back and, you know, and they're going to take care of me. There's a brotherhood there, even if they're uh, even if the theocracy that they're talking about is definitely tainted. Yeah. You know, you don't the, you don't see it because you're in the day to day fight. So you've you've done this, uh, uh, you know, unbelievable work in, in these different parts of the world. But now you're here. Right. And uh, so this is this is a new part of your life and um, being stateside all the time. And tell me about a, a few of the things you're involved with now. Sure. Because I, I understand yep. it's not just one thing. Seems like you, have, couple, to have, you yeah. have to have five, yeah. six, or yeah. seven things. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, got um, my, I, I get my own intel. I, get, I have my own <laughs> intel. <laughs> um, well, so I retired uh, from the Navy after right at 30 years in 2012. And uh, I, uh, my first, um, my next job after the Navy was I ran Special Olympics Iowa for a little over a year, uh, a very sort of service focused nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then I was recruited here into a corporate role. Okay. Um, and so the corporate role allowed us to, you know, have, have some opportunities with the family and allowed Evan to get some training that he wasn't getting in Iowa. And so, you know, we came here and we've been here uh, since 2014. So going on six years now, and it's been very, very good. And, uh, you know, but again, in the, in the vein of innovating when there's a need, 
I've seen a need in a couple of different things. Um, one is we uh, formed an organization, the Arizona Corporate Council on Veteran Careers. Mm -hmm. This is really about workforce development in the state of Arizona for veterans. And it's, it, it is a, a freestanding business coalition, if you will, of about 35 companies now that we've grown it to uh, that employ veterans. And we look at things like best practices, creating guidebooks for veteran employee networking groups, having mixers where we bring in student veterans from the different colleges mm -hmm. to network with these companies that that hire veterans uh that kind of work we we launched uh we were the sponsors of CyberVets USA, which is Arizona is the fourth state in the country to do that program, okay. which is free training. So that's one thing. Uh, I was the founding president of Veterans and Energy, which is a national networking group for veterans who are in, in the energy business okay. and do a lot of work out of Washington, D.C. on training and development. Um, uh, you know, I was on the USA Bobsled and Skeleton Federation right. board for about five five years until I found that it was just too difficult with the timing of the board meetings and being able to spend the time away from work. Um, I've been on the AAU Strength Sports board since about 2011, um, and I'm a vice chairman with them, and we do some meets, and I'm an international judge and a master's competitor and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so... And, and then, to be honest with you, when opportunities come up, uh, I just look at them, and if there's time available, mm -hmm. I, I'll consider, you know, taking it. But it's got to really be in the, the vein of the stuff that, you know, I'm doing now. Yeah. So it's either veteran business-related or it's sports. You know, those are sort of my two passions. And, and you know, obviously mine was sports and, and with this um – uh, sports stories it's just a new you know this passion that we're following right um but there was something that happened as i told you it, at a friend's house they had a um a charity uh event yeah. where they were honoring somebody but it was a night where the heroes movement was kind of you know launched into our our little right. atmosphere and there really was something so moving about what those veterans gave but not just what they gave, but what they're looking forward to in life. Yeah. And that they needed a path to get there now, you know, and, and they weren't asking for anything out of the ordinary, you know, and it was, it was just so moving um, that that's where I decided to form that relationship. And that's how I eventually, yeah. you know, uh, uh, came across you. And so, um, you know, whatever we can do to work together to support that kind of mission, yeah. both through sports and, and with veterans, um, so we're all in. So, Denny, I find that veterans transition is one of the toughest things veterans face because what happens is they usually go into this culture very young. Mm -hmm. And so they're brought up in this, you know, they, they go to high school or whatever, maybe college. And then they go into this culture of the U.S. military and we provide them with housing and they have their job and they have their same, you know, uniform that they wear every yeah, day. Right. And it's a it's a culture unto itself. Mm -hmm. And um and, and they're held to a different set of rules and standards that are pretty high, pretty strict. And, um, and then they, you know, something that's called networking um, in the military would actually be like against the Uniform Code of Military Justice because mm -hmm. it would be fraternization. 
So you don't like schmooze your seniors. It doesn't happen that way. And so we're, yeah. we teach people to do, you know, to behave in a certain way. And then they come out and we expect them to be able to go find yeah. a job. Well, they have to be retrained and recalibrated because they're in a completely different culture now. Even though it's American culture, they've never experienced it from the, from the standpoint of trying to get a job or, right. you know, trying to have a resume and, and brag about their accomplishments or anything like that. So, you know, so I... And, and I know how, it was, how, how, how challenging it was just retiring at my level. And I couldn't imagine what it's like to come out after four or six years and, you know, be trying to find that entry level and explain how your skill set fits in with a square, you know, a square hole, you know, for a particular job. You know, because military members bring all these intangibles like leadership and, uh, you know, team focus and execution focus and being able to get a job done. But they, you know, if you look at the average job, those skill sets probably don't match. They don't match. And so they have to, you know, learn all over again how to, you know, fit themselves into those kinds of roles. Well, so it, so it, I have a lot of passion it, around that. You, you do, and, and, and it shows. It shows. So, so congratulations. Anyway. Thank you, sir. Congratulations on a well-deserved uh, next phase of your life. And you didn't ask me any questions about, like, Thomas Magnum or Magnum P.I. I was hoping you were going to ask me about that. <laughs> you were ready for that? Okay, yeah, well, sure. Because Let's go. Here's the problem is I know because you're Navy, unlike that McKay kid <laughs> who's too young and he didn't know and he felt all embarrassed on my show. Do you know, uh, do you know Magnum? A little bit. Do you know what sport he played? At so, Naval so College? I don't know. I don't know what sport he played, but I can tell you a few things about him. Okay, okay. fair enough. So, Let's do I, that. I, I, my guess is either football or swimming. I don't know. Football's but one he, of them. Okay, but he was a he was a Navy SEAL in Vietnam. He was, and then he went into intelligence, and he, he was stationed in Hawaii, and he got out of the Navy in Hawaii after ten or eleven years to become a, a private investigator and his two best buddies are guys <laughs> that he was in the SEALs with. No. Right? You missed on the last part, they were um, – it was like a force that, that was combined with. There was one guy that was a Marine that uh, flew the chopper, another guy who I think was infantry. Okay. And, and they were all like specialists right. in their own group. Yeah. And then they did that stuff in Vietnam. That's why they all settled together in Hawaii. I, anyway, so, so, so there you go. Yeah. You're pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good. Did you ever watch that show at all? Yeah. yeah a, it course. was a great show. I loved it. It was my first reference to – Hawaii and I was, Hawaii's, oh no no Hawaii Five O was my first reference to right. Hawaii and then that followed but and see, I was like but, I gotta but, go. But there. here's the deal: Hawaii Five O was like a gritty crime drama. Yeah. But where a Magnum PI was like all the beauty of the the islands, was, right? Yeah. So I mean, Beautiful it was like a, it was like a love story around Hawaii. <laughs> it was. So, anyway. right, you're you're actually officially in the Magnum Club. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you, Admiral. Yes, appreciate sir, Denny. It. Thank you. Now it's time for an installment of As Time Goes By where we get to know Carlos Haro Jr. of Casablanca Restaurant in Venice one minute at a time. Now, let's play it again with Carlos Jr. Um, Venice being home to Casablanca. Yes. Right? Uh, and St. Mark being the place where you and I met. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, pivotal time in your life. Yes. Oh, okay. All right, so Venice was originally called Venice of America, and it was founded in 1905 by who? Abbott Nailed it. Okay. Casablanca Restaurant. It's located on the corner of Lincoln Boulevard and Rose Avenue in Venice. Okay. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is supported by the AAU. Find a local event and join at aausports.org. And remember, you can catch your favorite amateur sports live stream, replays, and highlights at ballertv.com. Sports Stories, along with East Bay, supports the Heroes Movement, 
nonprofit that bridges the gap from mental or physical therapy to getting strong again through strength and conditioning workouts. This free service is available for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces. Visit heroesmovementusa.org for more information. Sports Stories, along with thousands of people across the country, also supports the My Stuff Bags Foundation, a nonprofit that provides traumatized children with new belongings and new hope. Learn more at mystuffbags.org. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc. and is available on Apple Podcasts and YouTube or wherever you listen and watch. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. You can find all our social media links, archives, and other info on our website at sportsstoriespodcast.com. Special thanks to the John R. Wooden Course and Wooden's Wisdom. Original music for Sports Stories is courtesy of Lennon Music Productions. Original images by Sienna Lennon Photography. Sports Stories is produced by Marley Rice, edited by Bob McCall, and researched by Teresa Dolan. Additional staff include Christine Jimbo, Jake Downey, Ray Castro, and Buck Magic Lennon. Ground control to Major Tom. (laughs) That gets me. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. His podcast is on Thursdays. On Facebook, you can catch him on Wednesdays and Fridays. And he's also got a blog. This guy is out of this world. Ground control to Major Tom. (laughs) Oh, boy. Check it out, book.